0: Hi there. I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I started this podcast because I like talking with and learning from these folks. Some of you might be new here, so welcome and thanks for coming aboard. In a few minutes of podcast time here, I'll be talking with Eric Holthaus, who describes himself as a meteorologist, climate journalist, and a writer. So Eric has a new book out called The Future Earth, A Radical Vision for What's Possible in the Age of Warming. It has been out since late June in the U.S., and it was just released in the U.K. in early August. It's a pretty amazing book in several ways, which we'll talk about soon. I finished it a few days before the interview, and honestly, it has made me rethink some things. Uh, I think I'm someone who kind of intellectualizes climate change and the earth system in general, which is consistent with my day job where I'm supposed to help figure out how the earth system works. I perhaps don't spend enough time listening to what my body's telling me and maybe I don't let my emotional response have enough space in there. And ultimately, Eric, uh, if Eric is right, addressing the climate crisis has to go a lot further than technology and policy. If he's right, we have to use our imaginations and our kind of emotional realities and conjure up a new way of living with each other that's based on consent and reciprocity and mutual care, as Eric says in the conversation in a a few minutes here. That's how you build a society where we're less likely to take advantage of each other and less likely to produce harm, both to ourselves and to, to future generations. We could be talking about like an enormous intentional shift in how society is organized. At least that's the kind of vision that Eric has articulated very nicely in this book. And I think, it, I think it's compelling. I think it's interesting. I think we had for this podcast a relatively serious kind of calm conversation. That just seemed to be how we were both feeling at the time, which of course is fine. I, I liked it. And I hope that you will enjoy it as well. So that's probably enough for me for now. Uh, I don't think I need to cover anything else. So let's just go ahead and get into this conversation with Eric Holthaus. Here we go. Yeah, cool. So what what's up today? What have you been doing? Do you have a lot of these to do?
1: I just finished recording with Minnesota Public Radio, which is our main public radio uh station here in the Twin Cities, and uh, that was exciting my My partner just texted me and said i'm listening to you on the radio right now, so that's cool um,
0: <laughs> that's nice
1: yeah, um I got to do uh Science Friday, which is another big nPR uh, show uh, a national show a couple of yeah, yeah. weeks ago and that's awesome. Other than that, a few reviews here and there. It is the kind of book that I think is not going to be a New York Times bestseller. I don't think I was ever (laughs) intending that. (laughs) Um, Mm. But I think uh, where it is hitting off uh, really well is in um, academic circles with professors who are looking for uh, sort of an intro college book uh, you know, for, for high school kids and for, for a college freshman, I think that it's actually um, hitting off pretty well. Like I've, I think I've had 15 or 20 people mm. reach out uh, to say they're going to use it in teaching this fall. Oh, um, that's exciting. Yeah. And I think that, that this is a sort of frame uh, that is, I, you know, I, I intended this from the beginning that, is sort of trying to rewrite the narrative of what we think of when we think about climate change. So for sure, yeah. that was my goal. Um, and, and it's, it's really nice to see it resonating with people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely what I, what I'd love to talk about. So first, yeah, thanks for being here. I want to make sure that I, mm-hmm. I say that explicitly because mm-hmm. I, I always feel that way, but it's nice to actually explicitly say it. Thank um,
1: you. I'm happy I, to be here.
0: Thanks. Yeah. I, I really loved the book. So I just finished it you know, last week in preparation for our interview. And there's obviously, there's so much we could talk about. And um, it's good that you've gotten the opportunity to discuss it in lots of different venues. So I guess the best way to go about it for me is probably just to talk about the parts of it that resonated with, with me. And then yeah. uh, probably that will translate to something that you know, some, some people will pick up on in the book, you know?
1: I'd love that. Thank you.
0: Cool. Yeah. So I was struck by this this quote, uh, Dr. Sam Earle. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, and actually, first, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> I thought I should ask Holt- that.
1: Holt House. Eric Holt House.
0: Holt House. Okay, there you go. Yep. Thanks. Cool. So this quote from Dr. Sam Earle, who's at um, the University of East Anglia, which is not far from here. That's Norwich. That's just, a well, a short train ride from here if one is willing to brave the train at the moment. But she had this phrase about yeah, every moment we can reproduce the current imaginary, which, as I understood it from the book, is kind of how we conceive of the structures in the world, and how we conceive of the possibilities in the world. Or we can challenge that current imaginary and and reimagine it, think of a different future, think of a different set of possibilities. And that seems to me one of the points of the book is that you were saying, that imagination is really important, that our ability to think of different futures and different possibilities is really important. And for some reason, we seem to be struggling with that. We seem to be stuck in mm-hmm. either we're kind of stuck with this, um, you know, dichotomy of, Oh, we either have to work within the current system or we have to construct something entirely new. And I, mm-hmm. I also notice a lot of people get stuck in the the old binary of like, well, it's either capitalism or communism, and those are your only two mm-hmm. options and then there's no other possibilities there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought you're expressing the idea that imagination is really important that resonated with me, and yeah. yeah,
1: I think yeah, I think that you know the options are infinite, of course, there's an infinite number of ways to construct a a political economic system um in every country yeah. so. So I think that, that putting labels on things unnecessarily limits us for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's where the imaginary comes in is, is that, you know, the way uh, Professor Earl uses the, um, or Dr. Earl, I'm not sure if she's a professor yet, but I think the way she talks about imaginary is that this is your guiding framework for how you operate in the world. So your, your imaginary is your mental image of what society is or what proper behavior is or, you know, the fact that you wear, you know, shoes on your hand or in your feet instead of your hands or, you know, like their conventions, there are sort of unthinking ways we go about the world. And I think that's what she's trying to interrogate here is that we don't often have an opportunity to dive straight into the core of what human civilization is, of what we're working to uh, here to do. And that is, uh, you know, she and she's talking, uh, her work focuses on liminal uh, moments, liminal spaces, that we have these sort of transition times between imaginaries uh, where everything is up for grabs. And that is where we are right now when it comes to, to climate change uh, specifically, especially, you know, even more so during the middle of a pandemic uh, that's within the climate emergency. So we are right now looking around for leadership. We're looking around for the new way and there's no clear path, which is why people are feeling so much anxiety uh, and so much uncertainty. Talking about that, talking about where we want to go, what our values are, what matters to us is the way through. We have to construct the new imaginary before we can live in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that that resonated with me a lot. And it is a little bit of a contrast. There's a little bit of a contrast between... It's not so much a proposal of yours in the book, but the theme that you're exploring of, no, let's let's open up all possibilities and think about a completely new way to organize society. There's a contrast between that and the uh, kind of solutions that I hear from some people who are involved in climate science Uh, some climate scientists and some other folks who are thinking about different pathways, you know, they will say, well, things like a carbon tax or things like a just renewed investment in these technologies that all of those can help get us out of this problem can get us out of the climate crisis. And I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot or anything. I'm just highlighting that as a, that is an interesting contrast. You know, some folks kind of come at this and say, well, if we just tweak a couple of things um, we'll be able to, you know, still stay stay within roughly the f- current framework that we have, but on the other side of that is no. This is a big opportunity. We can change more than just uh, how we do our energy system. We can mm-hmm. think about changing uh, our social systems and think about changing uh, even you know the the indigenous rights and rights mm-hmm. across societies and um, and kind of everything. So I'm kind of interested in what got you. You know, I'm interested in what got you into. Thinking about actually, this isn't just about a carbon tax or a couple of policy changes. This is such an opportunity to blow everything apart. What what kind of got you to that place? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I think I, honestly, I think it came from just listening. You know, I'm a I'm a journalist. I started I started my career as a climate scientist, and now I'm a journalist. Um, sort of thinking about interviews that I did, just like this one, really. You know, is where we're just sort of thinking about. Um, what people's priorities are, how they diagnose the problem, what they think the solutions are, what they think the problem is to begin with, you know, I think that the problem goes much more deeply uh in society than just how we use energy and what energy sources we use. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is I think there there are fundamental systemic injustices. Uh, like racism and colonialism and extractive capitalism that have persisted for 500 years on the planet that gave rise to climate change, I think climate change is a symptom of those problems, not really the problem itself. So if all you're trying to do is just use... Um, I mean, the classic example is using natural gas instead of coal because natural gas is, is sort of um, uh, in a perfect idealized system natural gas uh releases less carbon dioxide than coal does when it's burned because of the 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 chemical um reaction that happens when you burn it but we don't live in a idealized system (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and in the u.s emissions have now shifted almost entirely to natural gas when it comes to energy production and so you've now locked in another 30 or 40 or 50 years of of uh infrastructure, uh, that's a sunk cost that we could have just went straight (laughs) to, um, renewable energy or, you know, that still just thinking about, um, sources of energy, wondering what happened to create a system where we centralized our energy production in the first place. You know, nature shows us that energy production is, is, and should be decentralized, you know, Plants have leaves that are decentralized ac- across his body a- oh, right. across the plant the plant's body. Um
0: so by centralized uh, you mean like having individual power plants that do the yeah. generation and then you send yeah, it bi- out to. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Biomass biomass inherently is a decentralized way of producing um energy. Uh that is what evolved over the last, you know, half a billion yeah. years on Local. the planet. Local. So yeah, you you use it where you need it. Um or you you make it where you need it. Make it where you need it. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so that's what I think in in a per- again in a perfect world, that's what solar and wind do as well. Uh but we're not in a perfect world where we have now massive utility um companies that are centralizing solar and wind just like they centralized coal and 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 natural gas. Mm-hmm. And so we are sort of trending ta- down that path where it even renewable energy is not a you know it's not obvious if it's a good thing uh, uh just on its face because it in some cases lives in that previous imaginary if we want to keep talking about imaginaries it lives in that previous way of doing things where where you centralize power and control and energy production and and money really mm-hmm. uh to the net detriment of the broader uh, population and yeah, and so. so there's a risk here that 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 if we're doing if we are not cutting deep enough into the previous imaginary that we will recreate the problems of the past
0: right so just to dig into that a little bit more so a centralized approach to energy that's having power plants and distributing it and then a localized or uh, decentralized approach to energy production that's like putting solar panels on your house for example just to be mm-hmm. concrete you know you make it right there you make the energy right there yep. where where you need it and the analogy you were drawing is that yeah photosynthesis plants photosynthesize they make the energy there you know where they live mm. yeah so the, let's to back up to the other bit there was a nice thread that you mentioned that I wanted to dig into a little bit more you know you mentioned that these economic systems that we live with, and these social systems, and some of the inequalities that exist within those systems, are tied into the problem of climate change, where climate change is almost a symptom of those. Mm. Can we dig into that a little bit more? What sure. are some of the ways in which they're they're all connected? You know,
1: yeah, um, I think the the most important one is uh, the this idea of consent and exploitation. Um, so if you're living in a society that is focused on consent and reciprocity and mutual care, you are less likely to take advantage of each other or to produce harm. I mean, at, at a very basic level, you are you are working together for mutual benefit of each other. And I think that sort of the opposite of that society is a society that's based on exploitation, Mm -hmm. uh, where one person tries to sort of extract resources from other people and from the land with the intent of taking some off the top. uh, And that is that that is their they extract their benefit, what they need to survive from other people. Mm. That system devolves quickly. I mean, we, what we, and, and it can con- concentrate wealth and power pretty quickly, which is what we have seen over the last 500 years really um, is, is that sort of that system sort of take control as the dominant system in the world. The discovery of fossil fuel burning helped reinforce that system where you had this extremely high density energy material that, that facilitated that, that that way of structuring society, where as before, you know, like with, if you had a global society that was built on biomass as its primary fuel, again, it's decentralized. There's, it's not that you can't like hoard an entire country's worth of, of forest and, and burn it as easily as you could hoard an entire country's supply of, of coal and centralize that. And, you know, build these massive like sailing ships and go and, and, and like invent guns and like take over (laughs) an entire continent, you know? So, so I think that, um, that it will at this point take a conscious effort for us to choose again, that, um, that world that is focused more on reciprocity and care and mutual aid rather than on mutual, you know, or like systematic exploitation. Right.
0: And uh, that I think connects nicely with, uh, when I say connects nicely, I mean is consistent with like, I just finished this book called uh, Superior and it's a, it's an anti-racist book, basically it traces the history, some of the history of certain strands of racist thought. And uh, the author whose name I've forgotten, I'll try to remember to link it when I post this episode. Uh, one of her, kind of points was to say, well, remember that, you know, racism was generated, was created. It's a, it's a PR thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That it was, it was generated.
1: It's a technology if you want to think about it that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To, to make certain people believe or feel like, Oh, well, this group is better than this other group. You know, the group that you're part of is better than this other group. And actually we, we deserve to, you know, go to this other continent and take it over um, just because, well, we're, we're superior. We're uh, we, mm-hmm. we look, look at all the stuff we've done. We're clearly a superior group. We we should just mm-hmm. go around the planet and continue consuming resources and continue taking things because, well, we're making it better. Right. So mm-hmm. that, that line of racist thought seems to generate, like It's very easy to see that producing an exploitative uh, way of looking at the world where you see everything is a commodity, everything is something that you can potentially kind of churn through, whether it's mm-hmm. grabbing land or grabbing resources, um, grabbing uh, labor. And mm-hmm. there's also systems of thought and prejudice there that uh, try to sort people into classes, right? And then you imagine, mm-hmm. oh, there's, there's classes who are going to kind of be doing the work and then there's classes who's going to be making all of the money and there are systems of thought that reinforce those kind of, you know, in in these uh, kind of inequalities. So Mm -hmm. I think that what you said does paint a little bit more of a picture of me of how something like racism, something like a kind of classism almost too, Mm -hmm. uh, can lead to this kind of exploitative system where you're not, you know, the people operating the system are not concerned with mutual care. They're pursuing their own, you know, self-interest, yeah. Uh, and in the in the states, you know, I mean, I'm I'm from the states originally, but you know, in the states, that's almost one of the romantic ideals that that is kind of mm-hmm. propagated, isn't it, is the whole mm-hmm. uh, the self interest, rugged individualism, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I guess, might can work if everybody, um, if if uh, under some circumstances. But it's easy to see, and like you said, we've seen plenty of evidence of this kind of uh, leading to exploitation and leading to centralization and leading to, mm. you know, big inequalities. And uh, so I think yeah, it is going to be important to kind of address those, to, to address those kind of systems of thought, seeing as how um, you can see that they lead to this kind of climate crisis. I don't know if I, I didn't put that in the most eloquent way possible, but it's okay. This is a, this is an informal mm-hmm. podcast. This is supposed mm-hmm. to be just a conversational podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I know i don't have you for very long so i'm trying to be mindful of the time and trying mm-hmm. to get get things a little bit more uh, focused maybe here and there um so that kind of leads me to the next thing is thinking about um I'm, I'm not really marching us through a set of questions i just have some notes that's that fine. i've taken from your book here that's what i'm looking at over here one of the phrases um that you uh, wrote that i really liked that i responded to was that we have to uh, radically act in the present moment with the deep and transcendent love of visionaries, that mm. phrase you use the phrase visionaries in there, and you actually use the word "love," which I really appreciated because I, I think that is part of it. I think there is like a a real there is a spiritual dimension to this, not necessarily like mm. metaphysical you know believing mm. things in a, in a woo woo kind of way, but I just mean like a spiritual like what's at our kind of what's in our hearts and what's our level of caring for each other. And that Mm -hmm. in the way that you framed it in the book, we're not going to get our way out of the climate crisis unless we actually learn how to kind of have that caring, that mutual caring for each other and to be able to look forward into the future with that kind of love and a kind of um, to be stubbornly optimistic and to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, yeah, you, you talk about getting out of binary thinking, getting out of this, you know, us versus them getting out of the thinking of it can only be one thing or the other. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like the phrase stubbornly optimistic too. I thought that was, I think that mm-hmm. describes what I tried to, that's what I aspire to anyway. Mm-hmm. You talk about shifting away from top-down control and centralization towards this kind of web of responsibility. And, and it, it's beautiful. Like you mentioned that it's, it's a beautiful way to conceive of organizing society. You mentioned it's not built on guilt. It's not built on shame. It's not built on this kind of hyper-individualism. I'd like to know a little bit more about your kind of pathway to this way of thinking because I've, in my own ways, I've kind of been trying to head in that direction as well. i have trying to, to you know, rethink some of the, for lack of a better term, some of the spiritual traditions that just relate to how do I relate to other people? How do I find that love how do I plug into that love and how do I plug into that hope and that kind of optimism for the future? Mm -hmm. So the, (laughs) how do you, I know if I'm throwing a lot out here, but like, how do you fuel, fuel all that? How do you fuel your optimism and your creativity and your hope and your, what's the engine that's, that's driving all of this, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, in a practical sense, I'm trying to focus on Reasons to get out of bed in the morning, if that (laughs) makes sense of like, you know, I want to wake up and be excited for the day. And that is, it is extremely hard to do. um, If you have a vision of working on climate full time, where you you think of it as sort of an inevitable dystopia, like, there's not a whole lot of reason to do the work if you think that your work is meaningless. Um, so, so I think that working on climate sort of requires some sort of level of optimism or hope or faith, if you want to use that word faith, um, inherently, because it's a, you know, it's a really depressing thing, um, to work on if you let it get that way. I think maybe climate work draws that type of person potentially that, that is that is willing to take take that leap of faith um, and, and say that things can get better, even though things are bad right now. Hmm. Um, I mean, we have thousands of years of of uh, phil- philosophical and religious traditions of understanding that moment of saying, "How do you act in uncertainty? How do you how do you choose to go on when everything seems to be falling apart?" I feel like the thread throughout religions is that, um, at some, at some point there's just no choice. It's just, you have to do it because you are, you're doing it for each other. You're not doing it for yourself. Hmm. Um, so, so I think, um, to me, that's where the work comes from is that, you know, people need me because I have responsibility because I have gained so much from others. You know, I'm to do the same thing for someone else that that you know, all of my lifetime of conversations has done for me. So I th- I feel like one thing that might be different, speaking as you know, as as a white man in the United States um, during this during this period where I have really you know had a lot of opportunity to get my voice out there for a lot of structural reasons that don't really have anything to correspond to how good or bad my ideas are, but I think listening is an extremely important uh, skill right now and extremely important to practice that skill. And because the way to have hope for me is, is to think that the future is going to be pretty different than where we've, we've come from because we know that at least when it comes to climate, the, the past 50 years has Has been really a series of I I don't want to say setbacks, but more of just like doing nothing. You know, Mm. doing doing nothing ends up being harmful um, when you are being called to change and you choose not to change. And I, you know, that you could we could talk about that when it comes to anti racism. We can talk about that when it comes to um, being, you know, like being a dad or a partner or a or, or a citizen, you know, we can talk about that when it comes to the IPCC uh, said in the 2018 uh, report on 1.5 degrees, that in order to get a good chance at, at meeting that 1.5 degree target, uh, it would require transformative change in all aspects of society. Apply that to your own life. <laughs> and... <laughs> and and sort of like think about how you're willing to create transformative change in your own life, and I feel like listening is is probably the most transformative change that anyone can make. Is, mm-hmm. is just sort of step back and say, I'm not the point anymore. The point is not what I am going to be doing. It's going to be trusting each other. You know, tr- trusting your relationships. To provide for you, you know, in that sort of reciprocal way that we were talking about at the beginning, say, um, say that we, we are, we are in the middle of a transition from the society that's focused on exploitation, um, and individualism towards a society that's focused on reciprocity and care and mutual aid. So living in that world or like if you can try to live in that world as soon as possible that's really what's all all that's being asked <laughs> of you is yeah. to try to lit, inhabit that world and sort of show others what it's like and hmm. i think listening is 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 probably one of the most important ways to get into that world yes
0: listening and making plenty of space for the idea that well there are going to be a lot of experiences out there a lot of human experiences that you just don't have direct access to that you just need Mm. to take other people's word for because there's no way for you to test it yourself um you know reading is
1: a version of listening for sure you know you are mm. you're reading and incorporating other person's thoughts into your own brain so exactly yeah
0: (laughs) Yes. And I really liked this. You mentioned all the thousands of years of spiritual and philosophical traditions about how to deal with uncertainty and how to relate to each other. I mean, you're right. The people have been working on this problem for a really long time. And that problem gets couched in various metaphysical things, which people may or may not find appealing, but they all do have something in common uh well i don't know about all of them i'm not like a scholar Mm -hmm. in that way but Mm -hmm. often a common theme is exactly what you said about it's about trusting in these interrelationships trusting in something that is um larger in scope than just your own individual self trusting in Mm -hmm. scope that is not directly accessible to you necessarily but like Mm -hmm. something that bigger than you that you could be a part of possibly and cult- cultivating those relationships with other people like you're saying listening and med- possibly meditating some traditions have meditation or prayer or something then that's a very mm-hmm. centering kind of calming kind of exercise mm-hmm. so yeah a lot, a lot of that's there and i think there are people who are d- digging into this project of like how do you pull how do you pull these the wisdom out of some of these old traditions and apply them to, you know, modern life. I also like what you said about, yeah, we're in a transition from a more individually focused kind of world to one where we'll have to think about how our actions affect other people and how we can get going as a, as a single thing, as, you know, as, as a species, as a a part of the planet earth. And I think that transition is not only a good idea, but it's like required. Like I don't think we can continue down the same trajectory, the same, really individualistic type trajectory that we've been mm-hmm. kind of embedded in. It's just not working anymore. Yeah. Th- th- thank you for that. I wanted you to tell me if you don't mind a little bit more at the end of the, the, the book, you have some, you have an action guide and you have some reflection exercises mm-hmm. and a lot of them did have kind of themes that made me think of some of the Buddhist practices. So I talked with um, a couple of episodes ago, I talked with, um, a, a buddhist practitioner who um you know uses meditation and he uses uh, other kind of dharma practices wisdom practices in his life and in his science and it it reminded me of that some of the things meditation and embodiment and non-resistance like not resisting the idea mm-hmm. of what's happening now accepting what's happening now mm-hmm. get, getting away from the ego can you tell me a little bit more about where that action guide came from and the reflection exercises
1: yeah, um, Caroline Contillo, who, who wrote the, the Grief uh, Action Guide, does come from a Buddhist tradition, so you did pick up on that. <laughs> uh, um, and I think that, you know, her, her writings in that, in that guide, it, it's really sort of, like, informed, I think, by her own experiences of being um, a person who has struggled with grief um, and anxiety around climate change. And working through that um, in sort of trauma-healing-focused trauma, focus- uh, trauma healing, uh, focused, uh, approach. And I think that that is what... I mean, because that's what's happening right now is that climate scientists are, are working through trauma, even if we don't want to say it that way. Um, being in a science that is contemplating change on the scale, devoting your life to that as it's happening is really... Uh, traumatic experience I, I, that, that's sort of that's sort of where where it comes from
0: the idea that the idea that we might need to like grieve the past climate that isn't coming back that mm. really struck with me that really struck me and i hadn't honestly thought that that might need to be a thing that I go through <laughs> you know what I mean like i uh, I do come from a scientific you know tr- background and training and tradition and things and i I just hadn't it seems obvious in retrospect, but like emotionally, I'm like, no, you might actually need to go through a process of grieving the things that have been lost that, mm-hmm. you know, I read, I read stressful headlines and I read stressful predictions mm-hmm. about the future. And yeah, you're absolutely right that I probably have been not fully letting all of that sink in and not letting all that fully register
1: mm-hmm. that,
0: um, I don't know if part of that is just, um, Some so some preservation, or some emotional uh, pattern that I've gotten into, some self-preservation instinct, or some emotional pattern that I've gotten into. But yeah, I think lately I've I've have started to more explicitly grieve some of these things. To give you a concrete example, uh, so my uh, dad lives on a bit of land in Southeast Georgia. He's got you know pecan trees, blueberry bushes. He's got a bunch of flowers and things, surrounded by pine trees on a dirt road. It's in the middle of nowhere. The thought occurred to me that like, by the time I, my son, my son is eight years old by the time my son is either my age or maybe his grandfather's age. I don't know if he'll be able to like literally survive the summers in Southeast Georgia. Right. I mean, Hmm. I don't know enough about the regional climate projections and I understand as a Hmm. climate scientist, that regional climate projection is actually pretty hard, but Hmm. um, we know it's going to, especially if things continue on the same trajectory uh, it's going to get warmer. The summers are, all, are already dangerously hot down there, you know right now at this level of warming, and it's only going to, going to continue um, if that same kind of broad-scale pattern you know, applies to Southeast Georgia, which it, it likely mm-hmm. will. Warm places tend to get warmer under this scenario. Uh, wet places get wetter, dry places get drier. that seems to be what mm-hmm. the projection suggests. So that has been a concrete thought that I've realized, oh, maybe I need to actually grieve that. You know the, I was born in Savannah, that's a coastal city. Mm-hmm. sea level rise you know could swallow that up or could swallow the edges of it up certainly mm-hmm. you know as as the decades go on so i really i appreciate you explicitly putting that in the book <laughs> because uh yeah for, for me that's part of what i reacted to was like oh right i might need to mm-hmm. actually go through an emotional process here <laughs> mm-hmm. that it might not be enough for me to just intellectualize the whole thing you know mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so I kind of want to hear your pathway into all this, you know, what was Mm -hmm. it like to transition from meteorology to writing about and, and owning your own perspective so thoroughly, because, you know, you've, (laughs) you've (laughs) you've been, you've owned your own perspective so thoroughly and you've been so vulnerable with us by sharing your hopeful, optimistic vision of the, of the, the future. And Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean optimistic in the best way in terms of it is that it is an expression of, uh, optimism that stubborn optimism that's what i was mm. looking for can you tell us like a little bit more about what that pathway has looked like
1: i mean i think that it has been a journey for sure um i think that trying to trying to articulate this book took place over a period of 6 years you know i started the book when um when we were pregnant with my uh our first kid um, uh, 6 years ago so writing this book has been about fatherhood uh, it's been about you know getting a divorce it's been about um you know all the political changes that we've happened over the last six years and now the you know the pandemic and the school strike movement and all of that um factored in to to kind of at the core of is what you're talking about is that at the beginning, I started writing this with this this looming grief over the world that was slipping away Mm -hmm. and didn't know how to think or talk about it. I was originally kind of trying to think about it as a, an apology letter to my unborn child. Really? You know, that's really, but then I started thinking it was like, that's pretty self-centered way of thinking (laughs) about the entire, (laughs) the entire climate problem just being a problem of my own emotional (laughs) a uh, relationship <laughs> with my kid that's pretty weird but um as i started to report the book realizing that this effort of visioning actually is really important when it comes to
0: kind of even conceiving of yeah possibilities and of having that hope
1: yeah yeah um in terms of of say like i think um, what I, my what my like inner monologue is when I heard you talking about Savannah um, and the way I talk about Kansas and in, in in the book where I grew up um, is that you sort of see this place slipping away or transforming into something that you don't recognize anymore mm-hmm. or that's yeah. different than 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 what you know it as where my mind goes now where it wouldn't have after or before I wrote this book is that that's not inevitable, you know, that's, and that's what climate science tells us is that, is that, you know, an uninhabitable Savannah, Georgia is not inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, We can do work today, every day to make that uh, future not happen. So, and not only, Working to prevent a bad future, but we can we can work to work towards a a better future, um, and that's I think what I'm asking readers to do is to imagine. I, I feel like climate books have encouraged us to contemplate us losing everything we love, <laughs> and like work, uh, you know, sort of um, act out of motivation of fear and anger and loss. And I think that we can also act out of maybe it's even more effective to act out of this like irresistible desire for the better world. You know, like you can imagine Savannah even being better than it is right now in the future, even like even during climate change as as some of these. You know, sea level rise will happen in our lifetime. It will flood Savannah more often. There's really no way around that because of ice sheet dynamics. Mm-hmm. But but I think it could be, you know, 10 centimeters instead of 200 centimeters. <laughs> That's right. That <laughs> uh, it doesn't have to be a catastrophe. It can, it can happen without being a, t- a catastrophe.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I think you did mention... Oh, Brene brown's work right in terms of her so she's a, a psychological researcher and writer and presenter her research in her professional career she's built up this picture that oh well uh shame motivating by shame doesn't really work that well That mm-hmm. it's not really that effective mm-hmm. um it's often what people go to it's almost an instinct that seems to exist of like well if you just you know, go to shame and go to making people feel scared. Then, oh, that's going to work. But you know, her research shows that that's definitely not the case. That people if tend anything, to do the
1: opposite of yeah what you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because exactly. they're like reinforce and get defensive and say no. Like, I need mm-hmm. to preserve myself as this person is attacking me.
0: Yes, yeah. and you know, that's one th- of the things that I definitely noticed culturally growing up in the southeast is that mm. uh, any attempt to induce guilt over environmental issues tended to and ended up in a very strong emotional reaction going the other way, going mm-hmm. towards just dismissing all the science and focusing on you know, individualism and focusing on, like you said, self-preservation, which mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, I, I do want to be fair to the ego here. You know, the ego does have a role to play. The ego does... There is a role for self-protection in all of this. There is a role for looking after yourself and making sure you're all right. You know, it's not like I'm, I'm not envisioning a world where you know where where people don't take care of themselves. That's that's a crucial part of the story, isn't it? Because you have to take care of your own emotional well-being and your physical well-being and social well-being. That that's critical. So, in in fact, that's kind of where a lot of this can start. Like if you are taking good care of yourself, then that makes it easier for you to care about other people. If you love yourself, it becomes easier to love other people and extend that love outwards. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. sometimes one of the fundamental kind of challenges is figuring out like, how do you love and accept and be kind to yourself so that you have a good foundation for love, extending that love and caring to other people and to society at large. Um, Mm -hmm. Trauma makes that difficult for some people, right? some people Mm -hmm. they, they reach out enough times and they, maybe experience some kind of negative backlash or maybe a betrayal of trust or something like that. You learn and those, not to
1: trust people, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then those traumas make them withdraw inwards. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like we're kind of seeing something like that on a large scale. There's this kind of rising tide of nationalism and xenophobia and of of this way of thinking that like, no, no, I'm special. I'm part of the special group and I don't need mm-hmm. to share with any of you. And I don't need to even cooperate or th- or think about any of you because I can just mm-hmm. be special in my corner over here. And I don't know if that's a response to large scale trauma or, or what, but one of the things that I, I like about your book is that it stands not so much in defiance of that, but it it's offering this other way. It's saying, well, as opposed to withdrawing inwards and becoming more, You know national nationalistic and xenophobic you know we we can imagine like yeah but think about how good things would be if we actually kind of improved the whole planet and improved the way we treated each other and if you know Mm. if we were more connected so i i appreciated that positive that positive expression i i don't want to end with a heavy question along those lines but like could you say more about you know what, what do you do with folks who just aren't going to buy into this, who are just like, nope, I've been burned too many times before. I'm not getting on board with any of this stuff. I'm going to take care of myself Um, just because every, you know, every other time I've tried to reach out and connect with something larger, something bad has happened to me. So I don't trust any of you. Um, I'm not saying there's an amazing answer, but I'm sure you've thought about that, about what to Mm -hmm. do with folks who've kind of been um, on the, they're on the outside of, of that for whatever reason. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I do think it's somewhere where you have to get to a place of participation on your own. Um, and you have to be patient. Um, I don't think that I don't think that it's productive to engage people, um, directly person to person, Mm -hmm. um, who, who are having that emotional reaction towards you. I think that I think that it just will they they'll need more time. Um hmm. and I think that that we are in a I pro- I know that I would have had a different answer 10 years ago hmm. because I th- I think that um we're at a moment now where where people who are ready uh to create transformational change need to pool resources and do it um, hmm. right now. You know like you know this week or or next week, you know, like start to, start to live in that world, in that, in that, uh, that world focused on reciprocity as soon as possible today, if you Mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and I think that that is going to take enough energy that I don't know that it's possible. I mean, when that person is your parent, your, your parent or, or your partner, or your child, or someone, uh, and you really deeply love them, and you want to maintain a relationship with them, that's a different story. But I think if it's a random person on the internet, that's, that's approaching you with comments on your blog post, or something like that, just let it go. Honestly, Mm. Um, they can talk and think about it on their own time. And this is honestly, this is probably a reaction that they need to externalize for some reason because they're so conflicted in their mind. And that feels, you know, that, that feels like, you know, being defensive is the first step to creating change in your own life. For example, it's like, is it's pushing away the change. At least you acknowledge the change is there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that um, I think that those people have a lot to work out still. And I don't want people to be, using precious resources honestly that could be devoted towards creating the change right away the focus uh, maybe that's on... not maybe that's not a super popular or maybe that is a controversial answer answer but that's sort of what i've been doing in my own life in my own world that's been my approach for the last couple of years so mm.
0: so there's a focus on kind of connecting with people who are taking action towards imagining and pushing towards a better world and, yeah, and that, establishing ends up, that.
1: that ends up in the short term, increasing polarization, you know, mm. because uh, people who are, you know, focused on preserving individualism and, or their own um, privilege will find other like minded people to do that with. So you mm. get those sort of, you know, like anti-mask movements and that kind of thing that happens. Um,
0: These kind of self-reinforcing bubbles that show up. Yeah.
1: And it's dangerous, you know, it is dangerous, but you can't, you can't counteract that movement on your own. Like you can, you, the way you counteract it is by like what I did in the book, hopefully, you know, is building up a vision, a shared vision of a different way. And then they'll, maybe they will once, once that movement starts growing, they will realize that. I don't know. I don't know. We're all doing, we're all doing this. in an uh, extremely weird time mm-hmm. with no practice like <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know like we're yeah. all doing this together for the first time so i don't know I, my the the best answer is i don't know how how to deal with it but sure, but yeah. i think that's what i do
0: i think what i hear you saying is that you have to accept that some level of that tension is going to exist yeah which i it's think it's
1: gonna be uncomfortable it's gonna be yes. uncomfortable to do this work yeah
0: Yes. And I think that can be hard for uh, people who have kind of peacemaker tendencies. Like I, I do mm-hmm. have that tendency sometimes I'm somebody who I would love to get everybody on board, but uh, you know, it's not going to happen. I, and you know, I have to accept there's going to be some level of that tension that is is going to persist. And all I can do is keep ringing my individual bell and, you know, hopefully that mm. will contribute to something bigger. So we're getting near the end of the time that I've got, got you for, And I thought we could end with just a couple of questions about what you've learned. Um, So I wonder, could you say something about what you've learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with it generally, you know, this going back a couple of decades now, something that surprised you about the way that science operates?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, One thing that surprised me is that science never ends. Mm. Um, And that's by design. There is no final point of anything that you were working on really like and to think that there is is sort of hubris (laughs) um to think that you will fix something or solve something yourself or even your entire research group you can move a conversation forward but you can't end it yeah yeah. um no i mean no conversation can ever end when you're (laughs) working in science i mean that's what science is designed to do is to constantly test and retest reality from multiple viewpoints and we live in a world where there's nuance and like um things don't always happen the way you expect them to clearly Hmm. um Telling the same, um, like, let's say, let's say you're re- researching sea level rise, or like you're working on the the Thwaites Glacier Project or something like that, where there's massive attention, massive importance, it's an urgent problem. Studying that problem, you could, you can think of an infinite number of ways to study the problem, you know, like, um, I think one one thing that's really interesting when it comes to like ice sheet dynamics is like, there are structural engineers, you know, like that's a major component of, of studying ice sheets is, is that you like study buildings or you study ice as a structure rather than ice as a physical process Hmm. Um, that leads insight um, to, to how it works. Um, I don't know. Like you know, the more people that you can get with a more diversity of viewpoints from different backgrounds, you know, like having someone, um, on your research team from Bangladesh who grew up hearing the world tell them that their country was disposable and expendable and going to be underwater anyway. So why does it matter? You know, like they will bring a different perspective to your extremely technical science focused, um, <laughs> study on ice sheets. than then someone would that grew up in Denver which, where they didn't grow up with sea level rise as a threat. Yeah, absolutely. Like your background determines your perspective that you take. We are, we all have these biases, and they are not something to be cleansed from us. But Mm. like, there is strength when it comes to studying a problem from multiple different ways because the conversation. That's what. That's what the whole point is: is having Mm. a conversation with as many different viewpoints as possible.
0: Absolutely. I better get you out of here. I know you get another meeting in like five minutes. So, yeah, uh, Eric, thanks very much for talking with me. It was really nice. It was really lovely. I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, thank you uh, so much. Thanks for having me.
0: There you have it. Thanks for joining us. I liked that. Did you like that? I thought it was a pretty different episode, but uh, in a nice way. You can find Eric on Twitter at Eric Holthaus, and you can visit his website at erichholthaus.com. So, nice job, Eric, on getting... Your name for both of those. That's cool. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. Okay, so I said I'd share something personal at the end of each episode, but I I don't know. This episode was already kind of personal at times, so maybe that's enough sharing for now. (laughs) So, my personal message at the end of this episode is the idea that it's okay to have boundaries, it's okay to control how much you share. So, here's my boundary for today. Not going to share all mine. I'm not closing up shop forever, I'll, I'll share more soon, but my instinct is to not do that today. And you can have that control for yourself as well, whenever you choose. That's something that you control, nobody else knows what you're thinking, unless you tell them. So, for now, take care, stay well, thanks for stopping by, and uh, I'll talk with you next time. Alright, I'm going to let the music play out, so I'll see you later. Yeah, I'm still here. You still there? That's fine. I mean, I don't have anything else to say. I hope you have a good day. Stay cool if you're listening to this in the summer because it's hot. Drink some water. Go drink some water. Bye-bye.